Good morning, everyone. All the Light We Cannot See is a war novel written by American author Anthony Doerr. It was published in 2014 and went on to win the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction the next year and the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction. And it's a story that's set in occupied France during World War II. And it centers on a blind French girl and a German boy whose paths eventually cross. And there's this theme that runs throughout the book of being uh, blind, not being able to access the light, and how that plays out across different scenarios. The author explains his works in this way. He says, the title refers first and foremost to all the light we literally cannot see. That is, the wavelengths of the electromagnetic spectrum that are beyond our ability to detect, and radio waves being the most relevant to this particular story. It's also a metaphorical suggestion that there are countless invisible stories still buried within World War II. Stories of ordinary children, for example, that act as a kind of life, light that we typically do not see. Ultimately, Dorr says, the title is intended as a suggestion that we spend too much time focused on only a small slice of the spectrum of possibility. Now, as I read Revelation chapter 4 in preparation for this morning, all the light we cannot see came to mind. And it's exactly the correct way to frame and enter into this strange but powerful passage. Humans are severely limited in our ability to perceive the vast majority of the electromagnetic spectrum. And yet, we move through our days believing that we see all there is to see. What appears to us to be a self-evident truth, that we can see all that there is to see, is actually a fiction. All we see is the light that we are able to. The majority that remains is all the light we cannot see. It's hard for us to imagine if even for a moment our eyes could perceive all the light that we cannot see. The entire spectrum of visual reality, which we swim in, yet fail to see and respond to. The Apostle John, who sentenced to death on the ancient island of Patmos, has been given this vision by Jesus. And it's an apocalypse, a literal revealing of who Jesus is in the context of an early church that's struggling to stay faithful as pressures to abandon the faith press in around them. And this grand revelation has begun with seven messages to seven churches in Asia Minor. But as we move into Revelation 4, this is a dramatic apocalypse of all the light we cannot see. That is, the heavenly dimension of reality that overlaps and interlocks with what we think of as everyday earthly life. So I'm going to read from Revelation 4, the whole chapter, verses 1 to 11. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice that I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven, with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald 
encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders, and they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, and in front of the throne seven lampstands were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures. They were covered with eyes in front and back, and the first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. And each of the four living creatures had six wings and were covered with eyes all around, even under their wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, In the opening chapters of Revelation, we discover enough to make a serious reader react like John himself, to fall down and on worship, but now we realize that even these three opening chapters have been only preparation. Chapter 4 is where the real story starts. This is where John is given the revelation that gives the book its title. Everything from this point on is part of the vision which is granted to him as he stands in the heavenly throne room. What does this vision reveal? Well, at the highest level, this truth that things are not what they seem. Things are not what they seem, what they appear to us to be, right? We are limited in our senses. We understand that. We just talked about that as it relates to our vision, but the, the parallels are across all five of our senses. Our sense impressions only apprehend a tiny fraction of the reality around us. And spiritually, this is also true. At any given moment, we are only aware of one one millionth of the reality of God's power and presence around us and within us. And I would even go so far as to say that in moments that are loaded with a deep sense of an encounter with God, that fractional awareness only marginally increases. One of the great lessons that apocalyptic literature teaches us is that things are not what they seem. Beyond our perceptions of daily life, there is another dimension of reality that ruptures through, sometimes forcefully, but often subtly. And when it does, it's a mini apocalypse inviting us into this truth that the presence of God is nearer than we've likely appreciated. So if you're listening as part of the at-home worship guide, I want you to pause and in the at-home worship guide, there's a video by the Bible Project under the link to the sermon audio. It's called Heaven and Earth. I want you to watch that now and then come back and resume the sermon. So 
give you a few moments to pause. Okay, and we're back. So think about this. For years, John has watched Jesus move into areas contaminated by greed and corruption, disease, disorders, sin, and bring healing, forgiveness, restoration. John had seen heaven's restoring grace invading sinful human reality through Jesus. But in Revelation 4, John sees God's uncontaminated, pure, holy space. And he sees three things that transformed his life and the life of those who came to receive this letter. The first is that reality has a command center. The second is that God is on the throne. And the third is the priority of worship. And I want to briefly talk through each of those. Reality has a command center. God is on the throne. The priority of worship. Okay, let's start with reality has a command center. Revelation 4.2 says, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven. Today, we think of thrones as merely symbolic of authority and power. But in an ancient world, thrones were, made, were where decisions were made. They were the command center of the kingdom. And so a throne room is where governance happens. It's where rulership happens. And John sees that there is a supreme headquarters, that reality itself has a command center. Now, let's be honest, through our ordinary perceptions, it would be very easy to conclude otherwise. We can look around us and see um, extreme weather uh, tragedies, terrorist attacks, injustice, personal tragedies. And we gather in all this data and it would be very easy for us to conclude that there is no central control. There's no seat of authority or power. Chaos is just uh, stumbling out and um, having its way in creation. But things are not as they seem. And when John is shown all the light that we cannot see, he sees a divine throne room. And that means that all of reality, including your life, is neither accidental nor purposeless. There is a power at work in the world that cannot be stopped, resisted, or ultimately ignored. And the second thing John makes clear to highlight is that God is on the throne. Revelation 2 and 3 says that before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby and a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. So not only does reality have a command center, but the good creator God is the one who rules and reign. Even if that authority often goes unnoticed. And from this seat of power, God is guiding history towards an endgame. Do you know what it is? Well, we're going to discover it in a little bit more detail in the final chapters of Revelation. But Revelation 21 verse 5 offers a good summary. It reads, He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. See, our senses deceive us. 
What stands out to us is chaos and oppression and instability and randomness and violence and death and destruction. With only the merest hint of that which is true and beautiful and good. And given this perception, our senses might lead us to rationalize resignation or worse, nihilism. Maybe even as you listen to this, you perceive that there is no cause for hope or help for you, for the situation that you're in. From what you can see, from your perspective, the situation seems hopeless. Uh, but things aren't what they seem. And when John is able to take in all the light that we cannot see, he sees the Almighty One steering history towards a grand and glorious future. There is a divine throne, and God is on it. He sits enthroned above the pitiful powers that threaten to overwhelm you. His hand is mighty to save, and he can save to the uttermost. And the only reason here and now to live without hope is because you don't see and know the God who is making everything new through his love and grace and power. Third thing, the priority of worship. You have these four living creatures covered with eyes. It's a very strange picture. And day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then these elders, symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles who fall down before God and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they were created and have their being. The creatures who see everything, right? Eyes covering their entire body. They see the chaos. They see the destruction. But because they see everything, they can't stop celebrating and worshiping the one who sits on the throne. And the elders bowing down, continually giving glory and honor, show us that worship is central to existence. Which... We should intuit as human beings because we all worship things. And if that word sounds too loaded or strange or abstract to you, think of worship as ultimate celebration. We all worship, maybe you know, lowercase w, we all worship and celebrate lots of things. Events, people, opportunities, things. But each person ultimately worships one thing as supreme, as the object of capital W, worship. The thing around which we bow down. That which we believe is most deserving of honor, glory, and power. So all of our hierarchies of worship might look a little bit different, but at the top, we all worship something or someone. Now today, we're often invited to worship the self, Humanism centers the cosmic story around us. And for some, given what they see, that kind of makes sense. But things are not what they seem. And when John is shown all the light that we cannot see, it is God who occupies the place of supremacy. He is the worthy one because he created all that is. See, that's why Christians go out of their way every day and then together on Sundays often to worship God, not just to pray, not just to 
sit under the teaching of a pastor who's teaching the Bible, but to worship, to celebrate God. And I know from a secular perspective, it looks completely stupid and weird. Um, but I'm reminded of, I don't know if you've seen these videos on YouTube. You, you can, again, you can pause and, and go check them out. If you just go onto YouTube and search for Enchroma glasses, these are glasses that allow people who are normally at a mild or advanced stage of color blindness to be able to see in color. So you have these Enchroma glasses reaction videos, and they are powerful to see. Often the ones with kids just choke me up, something, something bad. These kids who are putting on glasses and for the first time see full vibrancy and full color. And the reaction is predictable, right? They break, they break down and cry, almost all of them. It's overwhelming because we don't know what we don't know. So you get used to life. You get used to seeing it a certain way and you think that's all there is. And all of a sudden you put on these new glasses and you are exposed to not even all the light that you cannot see, just just the uh, what would be considered to be normal, uh, what it, what the the part of the uh, the visual spectrum that a healthy eye would be able to take in, and just that fractional increase is overwhelming to them, and that's why Christians worship because by grace through faith they have come to see more because of God's grace than they could have before. They see that God is worthy. And even though they don't see it to its most expansive end, even when you begin to see the fullness of who God is and what God has done for you, it is overwhelming. And worship is our collective and individual thank you to God. You are good, God. You are amazing. It's how you get the burden that, that gets um, set inside you when you begin when your eyes become opened to spiritual reality. Worship allows you to unburden this thing in your heart where, where you say, I have so much gratitude, I have so much allegiance that I want to give to God because he's restored my spiritual vision and he's expanded my spiritual vision. One of the challenges that faces us as we look at this chapter today is how utterly impractical it might come across. Certainly if we were just reading it on our own, we might read it and kind of be like, this is weird. And I don't really know what to do with it, right? How do you apply a chapter like this? And maybe even for some, they might read this chapter as a slippery slope into impracticability, right? They might, you know, they might kind of scoff at it and say, listen, this is great. Heaven stuff, revelation, whatever. But like, it's not really for me. I'm more interested in practical Christianity. I don't want to be one of those people who is too heavenly minded to be of no earthly good. And if that's your reaction, you know, I want you to hit the pause button and consider something. If heaven and earth overlap and interlock and chapters like this one disclose all the light that we cannot see, then wouldn't it stand to reason that those who are heavenly minded are the most earthly good? Because they see the whole picture. 
And when your spiritual vision is expanded, you live differently. But you also live more effectively and more fruitfully, not less. Seeing God enthroned in heaven shouldn't cause us to say, well, the earth doesn't matter and our life doesn't matter. We'll just wait and go to heaven when we die. It should animate us to live differently for his glory here. Remember, this revelation was originally given to churches facing tremendous practical challenges. It was an apocalypse meant to fortify and inspire them with a hope that would cause them to see themselves and God and their circumstances differently. And these were people who would have to face death and dismemberment and torture and persecution and hardship on a scale we can't really honestly imagine. And according to church tradition, many did it enthusiastically and with tremendous courage. How? Because while they looked around them and they saw death and hardship and decay, they realized, no, things aren't what they seem. This isn't the end of the story. This isn't what's happening at the deepest level of reality. God is on the throne. And they saw what awaited them, which we'll discover in the final chapters of Revelation. And those glasses caused them to live with a metal and resolve that echoed the response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were threatened by King Nebuchadnezzar to worship the idol of himself or be thrown into the fiery furnace. They said, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Wow. Do you live with that kind of spiritual valor? Do you live with a hope that nothing in this world can take away? Do you know the one who sits enthroned? with authority and power over all things in heaven and on earth? Do you live into his story? Is your life animated by the hope that is set before you? And does this truth cause you to enter into worship as both a priority and a pleasure? See, if you can't say yes to any of those things, it's because you don't see who God is and your eyes haven't been opened to the spiritual reality. And I would ask you, do you, do you tire? Are you tired of living with that kind of limited spiritual vision? Ask Jesus to reveal himself to you, to open your eyes, to show you him, his majesty and his glory and his authority and his power. And then when he does, follow him into all the light that you cannot see. As you go, family and friends of Nelson Covenant Church, may Jesus show you all the light that you cannot see. May this new vision cause you to overflow with thanksgiving and worship. And may it change how you love him and live for his glory. And may the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you this week. And all of God's people said, 
Amen. God bless. Have a great week.